Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Michael Emmett, former career criminal transformed by the grace of Christ. Michael Emmett, welcome to Facing the Canon. Nice to meet you, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. I am delighted to have you. Your book, Sins of Fathers, Mm. gripping, engaging. Wow. So, your father, your grandfather were career criminals. Yes. So that's what you say in the book. Absolutely. You grew up in that environment. Tell us about what was life like growing up? Well, it was funny, really, because I mean, I never met my grandfather. He committed suicide, so I never met him. But I, I sense in my spirit that I always knew him. It was quite bizarre. So my dad, he was um, four times married. My mother was his second wife and we lived in South East London in the flats. I'm out of the flats and proud of it. Uh, and he decided to sort of change our life. So it became a lie because we le- went to Surrey. We lived in a nice house. But so it, he didn't portray that at home. But we all knew because of certain situations that we'd seen and some a little bit of violence. I, I don't want to down my father and just the way he was. Um, and we lived opposite a vicar, funny enough, called Mr. Chart. So we was pretending, when we arrived down in, in Surrey, we was like the Clampit family. I don't know if you remember the Clampit family, <laughs> but that's what it was like. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a lovely school. Um, my sister and brother, they sort of really liked the sort of Surrey bit, but it was in me, that ancestral sin. And, um, so, you know, it was in me, so I, it developed. and. And I gravitated to what was dark. So I started stealing at a very young age. And it started at Woolworths. In Woolworths, because you've read the book, James. Yes. Well done. Well done. Started in Woolworths. No, because it also brought back a memory. <laughs> when I stole it? a pencil case from Woolworths, I remembered, and I hadn't remembered for decades. Have you repented? Yeah, I have. <laughs> so... It, but, but that's where it kind of started for you, yeah. like little things. Little things, yeah, little things. And and I started sort of, you know, I used to go sneak off and have a drink at the age of 11. You know, there used to be a thing called Party Fours. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah. So I used to go over the park and have a drink with my friends. I mean, at a really young age, I was doing things, smoking cigarettes at a young age. So it wasn't because I was taught that. Or, or my dad didn't teach me how to be a criminal. In, in fact, he put me in a lovely school it was a rugby school. It was, you know, we used to row. I used to do karate. So he was trying his best. But I don't think no matter what he'd done, the seed of the, of the, of the dark spirit, you know, to coin a phrase, began to develop without him even knowing. And then he started to recognise it in me. So, and then, but things moved on from Woolworths. You started <laughs> stealing antiques. Very quickly, James. And yes. furniture. How, I mean... Go on, what, you'd go into people's homes? No, and do you know what? I'm not trying to be sort of, it's not like a, a class distinction about being a criminal, because I've done crime, big crimes, but I never broke into anyone's home. I still stole furniture, but what we used to do, round the back of Eaton, Eaton, Eaton places, Harley Street, all them places, they were like surgeries or community flats. You'd be surprised in hallways where people leave their letters what beautiful furniture was there. Um, I'm not proud of it today, but I, I sort of became an antique dealer. I started learning about them. So we used to steal the furniture out of hallways 
or in the uh, doctor's surgery in, um, in Harley Street. But then it developed and it yeah. went on from there and it went into drugs. Yeah. So how did that all start? Well, I, I suppose, you know, addiction was sort of uh, apparent in me. Um, I'd been traumatised as a child. So from the traumatic experience that I went through, um, and I think it's a hereditary as well, addiction. So I was always looking for a fix. Uh, you know, women, money, crime. It was all like sort of a dysfunctional fix, but it sort of, I thought it was filling the gap. So I started taking drugs at a very young, when I was a young age, about 16, I started smoking cannabis. Then I started to realise um, my father, I didn't realise this at the time, but I suppose in the 80s, uh, all through the 80s and the 90s, my father was probably one of the biggest um, drug importers into the UK, class B drugs, not that it matters, cannabis. So I sort of um, was around it, I was on the peripherals. It was a semi-family business, but you know, he started to realise that when I got arrested for stealing the um, antique furniture and I was in Brixton, he was, de- he was devastated when I got arrested, devastated. Because he didn't, it, it was like I let him down rather than let myself down. And everyone knew him in the prison, so I was well looked after. And then he started to realise I used to start selling stuff myself. And um, then I got in a lot of trouble. I was being chased, I was in a, a police chase. And um, it was a very dangerous police chase and I wound up in a wheelchair. Uh, I was in Brixton and I, and I got I, I got bow and I absconded and I went to live in Marbella where you could go and live without being arrested. I thought I was Ronnie Biggs, I wasn't. So I started doing a bit of smuggling down there in a very small way in Spain in the early 80s. And I sort of ventured into Europe, into Germany, into France and I, and I got the flavour for the money. And, and, and having my father, who, who he was, it, it used to open doors. And um, the Bible says in Isaiah 22, 22, the doors I open, uh, now there's, they're godly doors. But my father, my dad, the doors he opened were definitely ungodly. Yeah. And, and I walked into those doors and, you know, I had sort of an edge because of who he was. He was a tough boy, but he's a very broken man as well. And so that sort of camouflage, that mask came upon me. I put it into money, into drugs. And, and before I knew it, I, I started working with my father. And it grew, of course. And it came, there was one occasion when you tried to import a significant amount of cannabis. Yeah. And uh, tell us that story. Okay, so we tried to, there, there was an importation down in the Bristol Channel in, in the uh, early 92. Um, uh, it was a huge amount of, of cannabis. They, they say there was 10 tonne uh, and it got aborted in the Bristol Channel. And we, wasn't, we was involved, but not really part of it. And because we tried to help, um, they came to us later on and said, I mean, we were smuggling anyway. And they said, you know, have you got an entry into the country? We had a, a fisherman who lived in uh, um, Biddeford at Westwood Home, and uh, he had a fishing boat uh, and we smuggled um, on a boat, we wasn't on the boat, we, we, we paid for people to bring it here. And he went out at Land's End and met this boat and they put four and a half to five tonne of cannabis on the boat. And, um, but what we'd been doing prior to that, we'd been fishing for cod and we froze all this cod so we had to wait right when the, the trawler came in. And um, 
we hid it all in the fish. In the, and they called my dad the cod father, actually. He didn't like that. <laughs> Bit of fishy. So we bought, the, we bought the cannabis in and we were arrested by armed officers. It was sort of horrendous the way it was. And a bizarre, it didn't frighten me that. It was a relief that it was over, big gun to my head. And I'm not, you know, it's the truth. It, and there was 60 officers there. Uh, I think there was 12 or 16, something like that, armed. And they wanted me because I was his son. He didn't realise I was a broken boy. And they came for me and they got me. And when they sat me on the floor, you know, I weeped over my children. I think it, it blew their brains a little bit, but I was relieved it was over. Michael, you got arrested, but also got sentenced, and it was pretty severe. Yes, very severe. Um, so when I got arrested with the guns at my head and all that, I was, it was over the moon, it was over. It was a relief for me, to be honest with you, and we wound up in Exeter Prison. Um, and you, you shared a cell with your father? With my dad, yeah. That was bizarre, very yeah. strange. You, you didn't make that happen. It was something no. that just... Just happened. Uh, two years we was in the Peter together, two years. So you turned up and you go into a cell. Well, did your dad go, hey, you know, my boy? No, well, what had happened, he was involved and he got arrested in Brighton, you see. So we arrived at the prison together. So, you know, he was very sort of upset with me, my dad, because my dad had survived for many, many years. We know there's no free lunches. And my dad had been to prison as a young man, but only for a, about a year. And some of the stuff that he got up to, so when he got arrested, he was 64 when he got arrested with me. And he was devastated because he blamed me. You know, the cavalier, the, the addict in me, the greed. But he was an old fashioned criminal. So when we got arrested, he wasn't happy. So we arrived in the prison, there was 17 of us, fishermen, a fishmonger, the boat people. So when we arrived in Exeter prison, they put us in together, and uh, I knew he was angry. So how did how did it feel being in a cell with your dad? I mean, were there bunk beds? Yeah, no, <laughs> the, the, the first cell, they were single beds. Yeah. Uh, and then we had bunk beds, and then we had bunk beds. I, I told Prince Charles to tell his mum how uncomfortable they was when I met Prince Charles. The beds were diabolical. But so we was opposite, and... It was bizarre because when we turned, that someone give us a radio to give you, because we was on the news and they think you're a celebrity criminal, all, all that stuff, which means nothing to them. Um, and so they, I turned the radio on, and I don't know if you know the, um, the singer Chris Rea, and he wrote a song about the M25, and, and it says, The Road to Hell. Yeah. Now that, that's quite unbelievable, really, because as soon as I turned the radio on, the song was playing, This is the Road to Hell. But little did we know, it wasn't the road to hell. It was the road to redemption, redemption and freedom. It was fantastic what happened But, but when, you, when the judge sentenced you to 12 and a half years... 12 and a half years, yeah. I mean, what was your feeling, your thoughts at that moment? That's a long time. Yeah, I, but you know what, uh, Jay John, if you can't do the uh, time, then don't do the crime. And, and so you're prepared for it. I mean, you, you really are prepared for these situations. But it was just strange being with my dad. You know, we was sort of next to each other in the courtroom. And, and they'd got him and they knew they'd got him. But there was a blessing there because there was a six million pound fine or do another six years. So potentially we was looking at 18 and a half years. But God's grace was fantastic. And I really mean that because we didn't deserve that. Well, maybe we did. But anyway, the fine got reduced um, uh, and it was, uh, we paid the fine. And, um, 
and we got 12 and a half years. And, uh, and, and I think it was the purpose of God. I, I really do. I really mean it. I believe that it was, I'm not saying that God condones crime, but for a naughty boy like me, he used it for the purpose of good. So it wasn't the path to hell, it was the path to heaven. How did you begin to discover the path to heaven? I was very broken and I had a, a gaping wound in me. I'd had a tragic loss and my brother died very tragically down in Spain uh, in a car accident and that really disturbed me. He never met his son. He's a, his son's a beautiful boy. He's, he's a, his mother's a very famous artist actually. She's called, I won't plug, she's called The Unskilled Worker. Mm. And, and it was tough, that was difficult. It was really very difficult. Um, you know, the jigsaw, the puzzle became, you know, when you do a puzzle, there's bits out there and you can't quite get it. And then you put a few more bits in and then the yeah. picture forms. So that was mainly sort of a, a great way of describing it. And and the guys come down from um, Holy Trinity Brompton, lovely Emmy Wilson, who I, I believe you know. Yes. And um, She's like an angel, isn't she? Well, she's a very special lady, Emmy. She's a wonderful lady. Very been very patient with me. Uh, and I've got a lot of time for Emmy. I've got a lot of love for her uh, as a brother in Christ. I, I, she's a really special woman in my life. Uh, and I mean that. She's a great lady. And um, so she rocks up to the prison. It was all sorts of things. You, you probably know more about the Toronto blessing. I don't know too much about it. But there was an anointing on, on, on these people, and uh, which I didn't understand. I didn't understand prophecy or anointings or the word of God. You know, I used to I used to pray to God to get my cannabis home. Bizarrely, you know, he never answered those prayers. And thank God that he did. Thank God that he didn't. Well, I got home a few times, but I don't think that was the blessing of God because I lost everything. And and God's God's word in my life today is incredible because I was a broken vessel. I was I was in the gutter. Um, I lived that way. I was broken. I had mental health issues, addictions, drugs. I was a womanizer. I was everything that you would want to be. And, I, and, it, and you know, the, there was nothing exciting about it. And then Emmy came down. There must have been about 20 guys in the chapel. A wonderful um, chaplaincy, a uh, guy called Bill Birdwood and, and John Coppin. They were great. They were great. And they're, and they're dealing with us. And... Um, a lot of things went on, and then Emmy slipped into the into the jail with four or five of people from HTB, and they started singing that song "We Love You Jesus" deep down in our hearts, which was a bit odd for us guys. You know, there's murderers, drug dealers, they swear they take drugs, and you know we're a, we're a, we're an odd lot. And um, but God's grace, him, you know, he loves the broken. He loves the broken, and um, they prayed, "Come, Holy Spirit." And I've seen my children being born, and it was the most incredible thing. But to get touched by something far greater than me, which created everything that exists, you know, we spin round in space. You know, there's no electrician up there turning the light on when it's, it's light in Australia and dark in the UK. It's a miracle. I mean, it's an absolute miracle. But we always look down, don't we? Always looking at material stuff or whatever, pretty girls or whatever, or how much money we've got. Uh, but this was something way beyond, way beyond. And it was a simple touch, but it changed my life. And I got touched by the Holy Spirit, by a simple prayer of come, Holy Spirit. My father, who was a tough man, you couldn't knock him on his, on his backside. He fell over. 
which frightened me a little bit. But the atmosphere in the room, this is what's amazing. If you fall on your back in prison, on the floor, immediately the bell goes because they think it's trouble, yeah? But even the prison officers, God bless them, and at the time they was the enemy, you know, it was us and them. But in God's grace, you know, it's like he blinded them, yeah? Because they, you, what was going on in this chapel would not be allowed to happen. And there was guys crying. There was guys being delivered. I didn't know that at the time. And I just got touched right in that, that deep, dirty soul, that hole that was in me. And I just thought, my God, this is, it's real. Jesus is real. And, 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 and it was amazing because for me, I, there was a word hope came, but I thought it never has to be like it was before. And that was the start of my journey of meeting this wonderful guy called Jesus, this beautiful spirit of love, peace. And what I know today, J. John, is the grace of God. Absolutely. But so something shifted mm. in that chapel. Definitely. So uh, was there a change in you and your father? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was the mo- a week previous, which I identified, Nicky Gumbel was praying for me, yeah, on the Sunday. And I had the same feeling, but I didn't know what it was until I'd been touched by the Spirit. I had the best night's sleep a week previous when Nicky had prayed, not for me, because he was in... I was in prison cell and he was at HTB, but God's omnipresent. Yes. And that same, that same buzz, that same feeling, that same, you know, just love what real love was about. So it, it moved me. Immediately I stopped taking drugs. Straight away? Oh, immediately. Immediately. The cigarettes went. Everything left me. And I walked out of that prison chapel with my dad. They said to my dad, bless his heart, he was a funny guy. The, the SO, that's a senior officer, said to my father, Emmett, you're drunk. He was slain in the spirit, yeah? And he said, there's only one thing I'm drunk on. He said, it's a spirit. Yeah. He said, what is it, gin or vodka? He went, no, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And they've looked at this hardened criminal who you wouldn't want to mess with, and he's proclaiming the Holy Spirit. He's proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And it was incredible. And I had to take him home like we'd come out of the pub. And I had his elbow and, you know, edged him along and put him in the cell. And dear bless him, you know, we slept like babies. And, and then it started and, and it, it was a, there was a difference in the atmosphere. There was a difference in me. But it wasn't enough people to maintain that because you have to be filled every day. Yeah, to encourage you. But you definitely had what we read in the Bible, an Acts 2 experience. Very much so. Very Being much filled it. with the Holy Spirit. Oh, without a doubt. But you, you've been smoking cigarettes from the age of... 11. 11. And drugs later on. 13, 15. And then that day you experienced the Holy Spirit. Gone. It just flushed out of your system. It left me, JJ. It left me. And that's a testimony to the Holy Spirit, to Christ. So how many years ago was that? That was in November of 94, and I'd only been in prison for about a year, and I had a long way to go. So it was tough. What, Michael and Brian have become Christians. It went round the prison, you know, I I had a reputation in prison, of not being a tough man, but that I was known as a face. You know, my father was known as a, a proper villain. You know, we was arrested for the largest importation of cannabis into the UK. You don't become a Christian, yeah? Or so they say. Yeah, but God's far greater than all that. 
And I used to struggle with the word born again Christian. It used to make my toes curl. And when the officers used to shout for church, RCs for chapel, I used to go, shh, be a bit quiet. Because I started to get a little bit embarrassed, a little bit of what my friends would say, because I went up to the London jails. But I could not stop going, because the flavour of the Spirit, the introduction of the Spirit for me, I wanted more. And, and God would just keep, he wouldn't film me, or he wouldn't give me that buzz all the time, but he just beckoned me to sure. it. Sure. But the chaplains helped you, encouraged you, uh, as every, much as they could. Yeah, yeah, they did. I mean, every prison, I think God makes a plan, and, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, because he's got a plan to prosper us, not to harm us. So it was like as if he'd put the right chaplains in the right place at the right time. He eventually, you got released from prison. Yes. How was it when you walked out? Tough. Adjusting. Tough. I relapsed on cocaine after a few months. Um, I went. I never went back to crime, but I started to go to the wrong places and see the wrong people. I had an affair with a woman to my discredit. But then um, I sort of, after about a year of, you know, I, I used to use drugs and think, what am I doing after you've had that beautiful flavour of the love of Jesus? No drug can touch it. Nothing touches what the Lord does. And that's real, because I've tried it all. And then I got back on my feet. It's been a struggle for me, I must say. Today it's not, but it was for a long time the... You know, the sort of change in me. I needed diner rods, you know. I constantly needed a tug, a prayer, a love, an encouragement. You know, I had a lot of illegal money, so that got in the way. That got in the way because I had everything that I suppose you think you want in the world. But it was built, he says, don't build it on sand. Mine was on quicksand. And so, but God uses everything for the purpose of good. So how did you kind of... Uh, clear through and press through to be who you are today. You uh, had to do a lot of <coughs> excuse me restitution, Very lots much. of changes. Very much so. Well, I lost it all. I, I lost everything. Uh, but I knew it was God. You know, I, I, I went from Hollywood to Cricklewood. I, not that there's anything wrong with Cricklewood, but I had a, I had a house in Onslow Gardens, yeah? Um, and I, I lost... I'm not saying it for any other reason other than to proclaim what God done in this. And and, and then I went back to live in the flat that I was born in, 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 in the council flats. So I, I, God took the home away because it was a mask. I used to drive a Range Rover car. It was brand new. I couldn't afford an Oyster card. And there's one little story which, is, which gives credit to God, how he answers prayers. I was standing outside South Kensington Tube Station with no money in my pocket, looking at my house I used to live in and seeing my car space where I used to put my car. I didn't have no money for a truck. I had a £10 note on me, but I bought someone a coffee and a cake. And um, I said, Lord, I've got no money. Please, please, Lord, get me home. Please get me home. I needed £4.80. South Kensington Tube Station is a busy tube station. It was Sunday afternoon, about five o'clock or whatever time, six o'clock. So I walked down the stairs, Lord, Lord, get me home. And as I walked down to the South Kent tube station, there was no one there but the ticket collector. So I was standing there thinking, what am I going to do? And I heard a noise. And you know when you go and pay to put your oyster? Yes. I heard a noise, a clink. And I walked over to, there was no one else there. 
Now, how many times you go down the tube station and there's no one else? I walk over to this clink and I thought, what's that? And five pounds dropped out. I needed four pound 80 to get home. God answered that prayer. I was looking at my house, wanting my house back, wanting my car back. And God supplied me with the needs that I needed right at that moment. And there was five pound. It could have been 10 pound. I needed four pound 80 and five pound. To get home. To get home. I had no money. And the machine, I mean, how do you work that out? It was an instant answer to prayer. And I got my ticket. It was, it was a humbling situation. I needed to be humble because everything was a mask. The girls, the money, the cars, the businesses. I had a radio station. I had flower business. I owned a, a, a music group called Kasabian. They were very big. Um, I had a, 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 a property abroad in Europe. It was all there. It was just in the way of me and Jesus. But he says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. But I'm wondering what the restoration is all about. And it was my healing. Michael, what would you say to our viewers? Anyone out there listening now, uh, they haven't encountered Jesus yet. They haven't experienced the presence, the beautiful presence of his Holy Spirit. What would you say to them? I would say get in the right place, be around the right people. And, and the, the noise of the world will prevent you finding the truth. God doesn't speak through the ears. He speaks into that soft voice. And it's a, it's a voice of love. And love's a verb to do is an action. It's not there's a pretty girl I love her or whatever. So my advice to anyone is to lock in or do an alpha course, or come to your beautiful church. Meet, meet experienced men who don't have a judgment, or women, who are not religious. It's about a relation. The word spirituality needs to go. There's only one spirit, because that's a counterfeit. I'm sorry, there's only one spirit, and it happens to be the Holy Spirit. Get over the fact that Jesus appears at Easter and Christmas. And, and you open yourself up, even if you, I tell you what, investigate, investigate. And I'm sure if you investigate, if you open up your heart, it's simple, you can do it on your own in a field. Ask the Lord to come into your life. Uh, and, 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 you know, you haven't got to tell everybody at the moment, but just feel his love because his love and his peace passes all understanding. So link in, phone someone, ask someone, Google someone and just relax. And trust me, the Son of God says this, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. Michael, it's been a joy to have you on Facing the Canon. Thank you for joining us. I love it. Thank you, J.A. John. First class. Michael Emmett, sins of fathers. And the good news is that it doesn't matter how far we have fallen, God's love and God's grace can reach down, transform us and redeem us. Here's an example, Michael Emmett. I hope that has inspired you. It certainly has inspired me. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again next week. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.